Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Is history repeating itself with the pandemic? On this show, we've given a lot of thought to how the pandemic is and, it, and its economic and social and political consequences is similar to the 1920s, the 1930s, and of course, to the economic crisis um, at the beginning of the 21st century. The, uh, the Wall Street crash of the early 21st century. But there's one thing about the pandemic that's different from previous moments in history. Back in the Great Depression or the Great Recession, we didn't have the iPhone, Steve Jobs' great invention, which he introduced at a, uh, an Apple conference in 2007. So this is the first great world crisis that we are focused on in the age of the iPhone. One man who's given an enormous amount of thought to this age of the iPhone and its impact on our culture, our politics, and above all else, our brains, is my old friend Nick Carr, the author of The Shallows, one of the most influential and profound books of the digital age, which first came out in 2010 and is now being reissued for its 10th anniversary. Uh, with a new introduction from Nick himself. Nick, before we get to uh, the age of the iPhone and, and, and how it's impacting the pandemic, um, why did you write The Shallows and what was your core argument in it back in 2010? Yeah, well, thanks, Andrew, and it's, it's good to be on the show. I, um, it started off, the book started off really as a, as an attempt at self-diagnosis, because I had been, uh, you know, a technology writer and a big user of the internet and a blogger um, for quite a while and, and got a lot of benefits from all of that. But I had noticed, you know, around 2007, 2008, that I was really having trouble concentrating. I'd sit down to, you know, try to read a book or a long article, something I used to do all the time uh, and really enjoy doing. And my my mind just wouldn't want to stay fixed to the page. Uh, and I realized that what I, what I really wanted to do was get up and go to the computer and check email and surf the web and Google stuff. Um, so I began wondering, you know, can a technology, a media technology, a information technology like a computer, can it really have a deep influence on how we think? Not only when we're using the technology, but even, even, when we're not using it, can it reshape kind of the way we think? And so that was the real spark of the book uh, that led me into a bunch of historical and neuroscientific research. And in the basic argument of the book of the shallows is that, you know, we got really excited by the internet and the World Wide web and, and everything because it gave us access to so much information so quickly, but what we failed to think about was how does this technology present this information to us? 
which actually turns out to be even more important than the sheer volume of information you have access to. It's how you take it into your mind is, is really, really determines how deeply you think about it. And what I argue is that the, the way that information comes through the internet and through our computers and our phones to us actually subverts deep thinking. It makes us distracted, uh, makes it very, very difficult for us to concentrate our attention on one thing for a long period of time, as you need to do if you're going to do any deep thinking. So it's, uh, it's in a sense, turned us all into scatterbrains that have huge amounts of information uh, inundating us all the time, but we're less and less able to put that information into context and to make meaning out of it. How did the invention of the iPhone and the the smartphone age, how has that changed already? Is it simply compounded the trends you already observed or is it revolutionizing that? Well, it. I mean, it's had, I think it's compounding the trends I talked about. Because if you look at the smartphone, and the smartphone, you know, when Steve Jobs introduced it in, in 2007, he kind of presented it as this is going to replace all cell phones, uh, all existing cell phones. And he was absolutely right. But what, what I think even he missed is that it was also going to replace personal computers. Uh, for most people today, the smartphone, uh, their iPhone or their Android or whatever is their main computer. And sometimes it's their only computer. And everything about the phone, the very small size of the screen, so you can, so it's hard to you know fit anything uh, deep or extensive on it. Uh, the way it's always connected, you know, even back in when we had laptops and stuff, it, it still was kind of a nuisance to open it up and get connected to Wi-Fi. Now we have a computer that's always connected. Uh, it's always sending out alerts and updates and notifications. Uh, the whole way it's designed has been has moved away from the page metaphor that we had in the internet early on. You know, it, the internet was very different, but it was still things were assembled in pages. Now it's streams and scrolls, kind of this endless inundation of information. Uh, and all of those all of those qualities of the of the smartphone as a technology as a device i think make it even more distracting and make it even harder to kind of uh, screen out distractions and and con and concentrate and focus and be contemplative so uh, i think it's revolutionary in the way it's influence the way it's basically taken over all communications and all media and all computing into this little object but the basic effects on our brains and the way we think uh, i would argue is a, an acceleration or a magnification uh, of what i originally talked about with the with the net in the shallows in your new introduction you quote jobs uh from that 2007 keynote when he introduced the iphone and he in talking about its revolutionary quality, uh, he, of course, as always, he said, this changes everything, your life in your pocket. And uh, there's a kind of eeriness, uh, almost a, a dystopian element to that. I'm sure he didn't mean it in those terms. But do we really want our lives in our pockets? That's, I, yeah, there, there's this big, and this is what kind of inspired the new introduction is that, is is looking back at Jobs's as jo at Jobs's talk keynote, and suddenly there's this picture of the iPhone. It's the first time you know it had been introduced to the world, and wrapped around it is this slogan: "Your life in your pocket." Um, and it in that 
turned out to be very prophetic. I, I mean, when you think about everything that's on our phone and everything we do with our phone, it is your entire life. Um, what <laughs> what that also makes and we don't have big pockets, do we? Our pockets <laughs> haven't got any bigger. That's right. And but in the, there's there's much to be said for that. It's very convenient. You do everything through one device. You track everything you do. You know, it, it's basically your an external memory for you. But it also means that that is a treasure trove <laughs> for companies that want to exploit that information. And so that's another story that's gone along uh, with the rise of the iPhone. It's uh, the attempts by social media companies, by Apple itself, by Google, um, to exploit the fact that we do now have our life in our pocket. And to mix metaphors, they have <laughs> they have the key to all of that stuff that we now carry around with us and, and can manipulate it, can influence us, and not just them, but all the uh, all the companies that advertise or try to try to reverse engineer the algorithms and stuff. So it's um, it's very convenient, but also as we've seen, there's there's a lot of risk and a lot of danger involved. Right, it's not just our life that's in our pocket; it's everybody else's life uh, as well. And of course, seems as if our president, or at least our current president, is in our pocket. Um, you've written some pretty interesting stuff, also about the impact of social media uh, on politics. To what extent is Donald Trump the first real iPhone president? I think he's very much the first iPhone president. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Obama was referred to in some ways as the Facebook president, but that was mainly because, you know, he was the first politician to realize that you could do fundraising through Facebook and other online outlets, and you could incorporate that into your campaign. Um, but Trump really, you know, Trump, made Twitter really the centerpiece, not only of his campaign and, and fundraising stuff, but of the way he talks to the people and the way he governs. Um, so one way you can think about it is that there have been three big technological revolutions, I think, in, in politics and campaigning over the last hundred years or so. For, first was the radio. You know, Until the radio came along, you had politicians, the best the politicians who did best were the ones who, you know, got up at the, on the back of a train or at a train station, made these big speeches, loud, you know, very emotional speeches. And then suddenly you, you had the introduction of the radio. Things became very intimate. People were listening to you in their living rooms. You couldn't, that gruff, you know, in your face way of speaking didn't work. So you had the rise of somebody like Franklin Roosevelt, um, who, who, who mastered that medium and was very avuncular, uh, and then we had a few decades of that, and then suddenly TV came came along, um, and uh, we had a stark contrast between Richard Nixon uh, and in John Kennedy in the first televised debate, 1960 campaign, um, where you know Nixon never realized that people were looking at him and seeing him sweat and stuff, <laughs> and and Kennedy mastered that that medium and Reagan mastered it and Bill Clinton mastered it. And now we have the third big revolution. And I think for better or worse, uh, Trump ha is the first one to master it in his own, <laughs> in his own unique way, but in a way that really um, shows how it can be a powerful medium to rally, <laughs> uh, at least in his case, to rally a certain group of supporters. So the, um, 
the, the shallows, uh, the full title of the, the book is The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. Uh, your work is scientifically very sophisticated and you have a great deal of supporting evidence both in the text and the new introduction. Uh, but what do you think the internet is doing and particularly the iPhone is doing to our brains in terms of the current pandemic? Obviously, we can't blame Steve Jobs or the iPhone or, or the internet for the pandemic itself, but it must be shaping and reshaping our perceptions of I think it is. And I, I think, as is true with a lot of a lot of stuff about the pandemic, it's going to be a while before we know exactly what's happened. But I'm going to have to go a little bit against type here because I, I'm usually a critic of the pretty big critic of the technology. But I think in, in general, the iPhone and social media has actually had a pretty beneficial effect during um you know, this period of the pandemic and social distancing um, for various reasons. And, and that's not to discount the fact that, you know, all the problems that we've seen with social media as being in terms of distributing uh, fake information, misinformation, uh, being a means of, of people, you know, crooks and con men trying to take advantage of people, that's all there. But I do think that, that both as a way to, for people to kind of stay up to date uh, on information about not only about the spread of the pandemic, but about you know ways to, to change your behavior, to reduce uh, the spread. Um, I think in general, the, the phone, our phones have been, have been probably on, on, uh, on balance a beneficial means of gathering information um and you know all of us are obsessed by this and with the phone you can you can constantly update yourself and 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 particularly in terms of kind of encouraging people uh in in a very broad in a very fast way to begin social distancing to begin uh to appreciate that the way their individual the way they behave individually can have an impact on the spread of this thing. I, I do think it's been been helpful, and I also think then, you know, when you are social distancing, the the phone kind of takes some of the distance out of your social distancing because because there's mm. so so many kind of social things you can do with, you know, you can go to class with Zoom, you can have a uh, virtual cocktail party with Google Hangouts or whatever, and you know maybe it's not as good, but I, I think that without those kind of social tools, this would have been a much more isolating and lonely experience. Is there something I, I know you've 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 uh, you had a series of essays written about the the, the creepiness of the social media age, uh, but is there something creepy about the way in which reality and technology seem to have come together? Firstly, um, in our iPhone age, we suddenly have a global crisis. It's a that's sort of playing itself out in real time, uh, minute per minute. And secondly, um, the the fix is based, as you say, on social distancing, which means that we need to spend more and more of our time on our iPhones. Um, is that just coincidental, or um, do you think that there's some higher being that has a digital <laughs> sense of humor? There's. I, I doubt if there's a higher being with a sense of humor, at least at, at this moment. But I do think it's very 
<laughs> it's very interesting how we have this phenomenon of social distancing for a very good reason. Um, and it arrives just at a time when we've been doing social distance, where we've been getting very, very good at social distancing, uh, you know, socializing without physical presence um, through our phones. And in many ways, that can seem like a kind of a narrowing of experience and a kind of a, a lessening of the richness of being part of society. And I think that's true. On the other hand, in a time like this, a crisis like this, it's actually very useful. And I think, I think what it underscores for us is that we've sort of had a reversion. If you if you think about the relationship of what we used to call the real world, you know, the physical world and the online world, it used to be that most of your time you spend in the physical world, and then sometimes you'd go and you'd go online. You say you'd go online, you sit down at your computer or whatever. Um, uh, hook up to the internet and you go online. I think one of the things that's been underscored or highlighted by our experience with the pandemic is that relationship has switched. <laughs> and and now the real world, the physical world is the place we kind of go to now and then. But really our main reality, I think, is the virtual world, the world we enter through our phones because we're kind of constantly on them uh, and doing all sorts of things through them. And so this experience is really emphasized. In fact, it's kind of, it's kind of told us, oh, the physical world, that's a dangerous place. You don't want to spend a lot of time there. You don't want to go out there. You're going to get sick. Yeah, it's much, much better to just, just stick with your phone and, and, and peer in that. And so in a weird way, it's kind of, it, it does, it has kind of emphasized what I think is a fundamental shift in, in the nature of what it means to be human. Yeah, somewhere, uh, McLuhan is is having a good laugh, uh, and the medium is is the message is uh, is the real message perhaps of the uh, of the pandemic. Uh, Nick, two quick final questions. Um, the first one's a a hard one, but give a stab at it. Um, do you expect the real world, the analog world, to make a comeback, or is it really dead? I mean, once this thing ends, once we have a a vaccine, yeah, I think it. I think we'll get a. I think the real world world will come back in a way that we saw, for instance, after you know World War II and stuff, where people are just going to be so relieved once they feel safe that you know I think they're going to get out in the street, they're going to go to bars, they're going to go to restaurants. So, so I think there's going to be this surge in uh, getting back out onto the street and stuff. What, but I think in the long term, beyond that, I, I really do think that this this moment in time. One thing it tells us is that now we're more at home in the virtual world than we are in the real world, and I don't think that's going to change. Finally, Nick, uh, I, I know one of the things that triggered the shallows was your recognition that you weren't reading books anymore, or that you were struggling to finish books, to get all the way through. Um, now, I know that struggle you've, you've overcome. You, you still read a lot. One book that people might read in, in, in the age of the coronavirus. Well... What I'm going to recommend is a book that I that's been out for a long time, but I only recently got around to reading it. And it's a book by Richard Rhodes called "The Making of the Atomic Bomb." You may have you may have read it. Um, it's a really really good book, really good history. You get kind of a total education about chemistry and physics and the war. Um, 
Uh, and it's also really long, so it, it it fills up a lot of the spare time that we have right now, but also very, very engaging. Um, and also it's, uh, it's well-timed because among other things, one thing we're not paying attention to given the pandemic, but this is the 75th anniversary year of the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, so it is historically appropriate thing to read at, at this time too. And it removes you from our current crisis and puts you into a earlier crisis, I guess, in a way. But it's a very good book. Well, Nick, uh, as always, it's a great honor and pleasure to talk to you. Um, don't rely too much on your iPhone because I do want you to protect your brain. And I will look forward to actually physically getting get back together with you once this crisis is finished. Well, I, I share that sentiment completely and hopefully it's not too long. So thank you, Andrew. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.